0: ABC College. Hope you guys are doing well again on this Wednesday. Uh, thanks for watching again uh, here during our core series we're doing this summer in the midst of quarantine and all that's going on. I uh, hope this finds you well here in the middle of July. Uh, no matter where you're at uh, here in Tuscaloosa, it's like a billion degrees, but it's beautiful, which is great. Um, but no matter where you're at, whether you're on the beach or you're somewhere where it's somehow cold and not hot right now, uh, we hope you guys are doing well. And just glad you're here. Uh, But we're going to go and get right into our video again uh, this week. If you watched last week, you know that we talked about salvation and specifically what it means to get saved or to be saved. We use that phrase a lot in the church. And really, throughout this entire series, we've been kind of tracing through you know, what are the core teachings of the Bible and how do we respond to them. And last week, we talked about how to get saved or to be saved is to respond to what God has done for us. And really, we said that what it means to get saved or to be converted as a Christian uh, really means two things. Uh, on our side, we repent and believe in the gospel, the, the good news of what Christ has done for us, that we repent, we turn from our sin, and that we believe in, we trust Him, we rest in what Jesus has done for us. That's our side. But then we also talked about God's side. And how in salvation and converting us, that God regenerates us. He breathes new spiritual life into us to where we're born again. And so that's, you know, in a very compact way, what we mean when we say we got saved. That we respond to the gospel by repenting and believing in and, and God brought us new spiritual life through uh, regenerating us. We may not always use that phrase, but that's really what we mean. Well, this week, we're going to continue this conversation uh, talking about You know, what really is salvation? Uh, There's lots of things we could say with this, uh, but we're going to kind of try to, you know, in a simple, maybe hopefully short way, really define what salvation uh, is. And so the way we're going to define it tonight is this, and I'll give you this kind of sentence to be our main point for the evening, is this, that salvation is the process by which Christians have been justified, are being sanctified, And will be glorified. There's a past, present, and future tense to that, right? That we have been justified, that we are being sanctified, and that we will be glorified. And it's a process. So we're going to talk about those three big words there, the the Asian words, the justification, sanctification, and glorification tonight, and define them. You may have heard those before in the church. Uh, You may be familiar with this. You may not be, but I hope it's going to be helpful for us tonight, But let me just point to two scriptures where we get these ideas from. Really, they're all over the New Testament, especially. Um, but just two to, to kind of get our thoughts started tonight. The first is Romans 8, 28 through 30. Paul says this, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he pre- predestined, he also called. And those whom he, he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we see there's two ideas there, that we are justified and we'll be glorified. Uh, Paul really puts it in the past tense to say that our glorification is so sure that he can even speak about it in the past tense. But it's, it's a future reality in many ways. We'll talk about that. But another text that helps us see this idea is Hebrews 10, 12, through 14. It says this, that, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we see that there is a present tense process even in sanctification. So let's talk about these three ideas tonight, justification, sanctification, and glorification, and what that means when it comes to salvation. First, justification. Let me give you a definition. Uh, All three of our definitions are going to be from Wayne Grudem's theology textbook, uh, Systematic Theology, tonight. But he defines justification as this. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which He forgives us of our sins and thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And therefore, we are now just or morally righteous in his sight. It's a great definition. But really, if you even do a word study on justification, you'll find in the Bible that the word justified actually comes from the same root word where we get righteous and righteousness. It's in the Greek, not in English. You wouldn't pick that up. But it does have that same root word. And this idea of justification is actually so central to the gospel, so much we've already talked about it even, but we want to revisit it for just a few minutes, but we know that on our own, like we've mentioned many times already in this series, that on our own, we stand unrighteous and condemned before God because of our rebellion, because of our sin. But God is full of mercy, and He's full of compassion, so He steps in and brings us righteousness, not on our own, not through anything that we've done, but only through what Christ has done for us in in doing so he makes us justified in his sight so let me give you really three quick things about justification that I think help make it clear um, the first is this is that the first thing about justification that we are more than just innocent when we're justified let me start by giving you an illustration imagine you're in a courtroom and imagine you're standing before the bench of the judge and you're waiting to be sentenced To death for a crime that you've committed and as the verdict is announced and as you're declared guilty something shocking happens that the judge actually rises from his place he walks out to where you're seated and he tells the bailiff to release you and as you stand there freed in shock you watch as the judge himself places your chains on himself and therefore takes your punishment and your penalty You're set free because of the substitution of the judge on your behalf. And now, many times in salvation, we get this analogy kind of, or we make it fall short because we stop the analogy there. But in salvation, the way the Bible talks about it is so much even better because instead of just being released from your change, the judge then leans over to you and he hands you his keys saying, I want you to possess everything that I own, my car, my house, my bank account, It's all yours now. And that's the idea that we see of justification. It's not just that we're declared innocent and not guilty anymore, but that we receive even the very righteousness and perfection of Jesus. And it's an amazing thing. Uh, R.C. Sproul, the theologian, loved to use this three circles analogy. Not the three circles you've maybe heard of for like sharing the gospel, but three circles for illustrating justification. I'll put the image here on the screen. So on the left side, you see what we can say, what we are before we become a Christian. See the little negative signs there? Those are showing our sin, our guilt, our condemnation before God. Now, many people would say when we become a Christian, we move from that first circle simply to the second circle. See how that second circle has, it's blank, it's empty. We'd say, yeah, okay, we're made innocent, we're made um, not guilty, we're made clean before God. And that's absolutely true, but that's really falling short of what it really means to be saved, to be justified. Really, justification is that third circle, that not only are we cleansed from our sin, but that we receive those plus signs, which is the positive aspect, the righteousness of Jesus. That we're not just cleansed and made neutral before God, but we're made clean. Sorry, we're made justified, we're made righteous before God's eyes. That when God looks at us, he doesn't see just a forgiven sinner, but he sees the righteousness, the perfection of Jesus. Sometimes we say that justification means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. You may have heard that before. And while that's not untrue, it falls short because it's not that we just haven't ever sinned. But that it's also, when we become justified, it's as if we've always lived perfectly and that we've been righteous and obedient like the Son of God Himself has been for all eternity, that we receive that kind of righteousness, that we receive the perfection of Christ. It's so much better than simply being innocent. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we see the problem of justification. And that's a question that we've actually asked before, but it's helpful to talk about again, is how can a just God forgive guilty people? Well, if you look at Romans 3.25, Paul answers this for us. He says this, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now we defined before that Propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away wrath. So Jesus' death for us took away God's wrath for us. And all that's left now that God's wrath is taken away is His love for us. And here in this passage we saw, Paul says that God had been forgiving sins in the Old Testament through faith, people putting their faith in Him, but yet no penalty had been paid yet for their sin. And that's why Jesus had to come and take on the wrath of God for us so that He could die in our place So that God could be just in punishing sin, but also he could be the justifier. He could be compassionate, loving, merciful, and also saving us from our sin. So Christ on the cross is God being both the justifier and being just at the same time. That's how I just God can forgive guilty people. That's the second thing. Third thing is this. Well, how do we receive justification? We receive it by faith alone. We talked about this some last week, but it's important to remember when we're talking about this. Romans 5:1 would tell us that therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2:8 through9 would tell us this that for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So hear this, Justification comes as a result of God's grace, not our works. It's a free gift. That we receive from god we can't deserve it and we can't earn it it simply comes by putting our faith in what christ has done like we said last week it comes through repenting and believing in which we trust god to do what we could never do for ourselves that justification is a result of faith not works before we wrap up this part on justification i do want to mention uh, two false views two wrong views of justification Uh, The first wrong view is something we can call decisionalism. Decisionalism would say this wrong view about justification. They would say that a profession of faith or praying a prayer equals justification. And when I mean decisionalism, I mean the, the fact that some people, maybe even some of us, would say that we're secure and we're sure about our salvation simply because we prayed a prayer one time at a church service or you know at a VBS or something like that but yet we see no other evidence in our lives to really you know prove or give evidence and fruit that we're saved. We simply look at that decision we made at one time which apparently had no ramifications in our life and we say okay well I'm right with God because I prayed that prayer. You probably know people who have said things like that before. Let me just point out Ephesians 2.10. It's the verse right after what we just read a second ago. Just listen to how Paul talks about the results of salvation. He says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what Paul is saying here is this, is that if we receive salvation through faith, there's going to be some works that result from that not that those works save us in any way we're saved by faith alone but yet that faith that saves is never alone it's never without evidence and fruit the whole New Testament is full of pictures of there being results and evidence that should be in our lives from us becoming a Christian and really being justified so if we're not turning from sin if we're not loving the things of God if we're not learning to be more and more like Christ if we're not wanting to be part of the church and be plugged into Christian community then we have some serious questions to ask because those are all fruits and evidence that we should see in our lives of becoming a Christian, of being justified. And so the faith that saves is never alone. So that's decisionalism. That's a false view of justification. The second false view of justification is legalism. And legalism would say that justification is by faith, but our standing with God, our right standing with God, is by good works. That, yeah, we're justified by by faith, but I stay in good standing with God based on what I do. And that's also completely wrong because, yet again, justification is not based on our performance at all, right? It's completely based on what Christ has done for us. The truth of the gospel is that there's no amount of good you can ever do to make God love you more, no amount of bad you've ever done to make Him love you less. It doesn't work that way because it's all based on the, the work of Christ in your place. And legalism gets things wrong because legalism, is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. And while obedience should result from our justification, from our faith, it in no way is going to earn it because we can never earn it on our own in the first place. All right, so that's justification. I think we've talked about that, you know, even in multiple weeks enough. So that's the first aspect, the first step of salvation is it's a past thing that God has done for us, that when you become a Christian, when you repent and believe, you are immediately justified before God in Christ, but then there's the second part of this. There's justification. There's also sanctification. Let me give you a definition of that. Uh, Wayne Grudem would define sanctification as a progressive work of both God and man that makes Christians more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in their actual lives. God and His children cooperate in this work, both playing distinct roles. So Notice in that definition how this is a process. It's not a past tense thing like justification is, but it's a process. And also it's something that Christians cooperate with God in doing. You know, while Christians can expect you know, growth in sanctification in their lives, we do grow more and more like Christ. we got to remember this, though, that we're never going to achieve perfection in this life until Christ returns. But in sanctification, our old way of life has been crucified with Christ, and the new way of life that we live, the new us, is made alive with Jesus, and we seek to grow in that. But the fact of sanctification is this, is that even though in justification we have been freed from the the power of sin, we've been freed from the guilt of sin, we still haven't been freed from the presence of sin in our lives because in our bodies, still on this earth, Our bodies have indwelling sin that still remain in them. And as long as you and I are in our bodies, we're going to have to fight the old desires that we have from before salvation. And we're going to have to really cultivate new desires. we got to say no to sin and say yes to Christ. We have to die to sin and live for Jesus. And that's a daily process. But let me give you an illustration to kind of help drive this point home. Imagine for a moment you are an emancipated slave. And you are free now from the tyranny of your former owner and master. And then you decide to start a new life as a, as a free man. Incredibly, there's actually a farm that's given to you. And it actually ends up being right beside your old master's farmland. So you begin to live your new life. Yet every day, your former slave owner starts calling across the fence to you and demands that you continue to submit to him. Even though you've been set free. Well, here's the thing. His voice may frighten you. His voice may even cause you to flinch sometimes based on your past. You know, you may even begin sometimes to obey him and I even recognize it sometimes. But here's the thing. You can stop because you can actually now turn and face your old master and say by the power of Jesus, no, you don't own me anymore. It's the same thing for us in sin, that sin does not own us anymore. We're not slaves to sin anymore. The presence of sin will still be there. We'll still be tempted. We'll still have to fight, but it doesn't define us anymore. That's the power of, the pro- that's the power of justification that is now working itself out in our sanctification. Make sense? Let me give you three quick things about sanctification, and we'll move on. Number one, like we said, sanctification is a process that even though we're no longer ruled by sin, and even though the power of sin is broken, the presence still remains in our lives while we're in our physical body. And sanctification is a process. And we're never going to be completely free from it in this life. But that doesn't mean that we don't do some hard work sometimes of trying to grow in our sanctification. Because it is a lot of work. It's a process. And the way that we even cooperate along with God in this is by simply having the discipline to say no to sin, but also having the spiritual disciplines to grow our hearts to love God more each day. Things like time in God's Word, things like prayer, things like being committed to Christian community, even things like fasting and even taking time for silence and solitude. Those are all different ways that we can kill sin in our lives and we can grow more like Christ. We can grow more in this process of sanctification, but we have an active role to play. We can't just be passive and say, well, God, if he wants me to be like Jesus more, then he'll do it. No, he has given us so many means to grow in that way, even though ultimately in the end, he's the one that does it within us. We have to cooperate with him. That's the way that he's designed this process, which is our second point is that sanctification is cooperative, that God's role in sanctification is to give life and power in the spirit but our role is dependent discipline. Think about the way Romans eight thirteen says it. Paul says there that we should put to death the deeds of the body, which implies an active role. You know now God unites us with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, which therefore means that we can cooperate with Him. But it still means that we have an active role to play. We even see this in Philippians two twelve and thirteen, where Paul says that you should work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In that, we see both that we're working out our salvation and that God is working in us. There's a cooperation uh, involved in that. And there's lots of ways that we mentioned that we work that out through spiritual discipline, but it is a process. Number three on sanctification is that sanctification is a result of our justification. Because according to Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for anyone Who is in Christ Jesus. That if you're a Christian, you've already been set free from the penalty of your sin. The judge who once declared you guilty now declares you justified. So Romans 8 for you then means that your sanctification process is not a way for you to earn your salvation and feel like you have to earn God's favor, but instead sanctification for you is you walking in the new life that God has given you in this spirit. It's a entirely new mindset that you take on once you become a Christian. So that's sanctification. But before we move on to glorification, the last step, I do want to mention one other aspect of salvation that we're, um, I wish we could spend a whole week talking about it, but for sake of time we won't, but that's adoption. We see this a lot in the Bible, but what does it mean to be adopted by God when we become a Christian? Well, Wayne defines it defines it this way. He says, "...adoption is the work of God whereby He takes those who were not part of His family and He makes them His children." which is kind of just the definition of adoption anyway, just with God put in there as the adopter. But here's the thing. Before we were Christians, we were slaves to sin, that we were owned by sin. You know, Before we would lower our eyes in fear and shame before God. But now we can lift up our voices and cry out to Him that He is our Abba Father. He's no longer this distant ruler in the sky that we have dishonored, but instead He has now become our Heavenly Father who loves us, that we're His kids now. And if you really begin to think about that and live that out, it will have profound transformative power in your life when you begin to realize that God looks at you, you as his kid. He loves you as his child, not just someone that he's tolerating. Uh, J.I. Packer even went as far to say that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of our adoption. That adoption is so central in our Christian lives to know that we're his kids, that God views us with the love and affection of a perfect father and that we can rest in that, that even as we screw up and as we fall many times, that God celebrates even the small growth in our lives, and He loves us too much to leave us there. He wants to continue to grow us to be more like Him because it's ultimately what's best for us, which is what any good father wants is the best for their kids. So that's adoption. Last thing is glorification, and we'll wrap up. Let me give you the definition of glorification. Glorification, according to Wayne Grudem, says, that glorification is the final step In the application of redemption it will happen when Christ returns and raises the bodies of all believers for all time who have died reuniting them with their souls he will also change the bodies of all believers who remain alive thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own so if justification is a past thing that's happened in our lives if sanctification is a present thing in our lives where we are growing more like Christ then glorification is therefore a future thing that is to come in our lives. And glorification is when Christ returns and we spend forever with God in the new heaven and new earth when we're glorified and made perfect. So let me give you a few thoughts about glorification. Glorification, first off, what we said is in the future. It's when Christ returns. That when we're raised, when Jesus comes back again, whenever that is, we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Not that I know when it is, but you know, we'll talk about ideas of when he'll come back. But when we're raised, when Christ returns, it's going to be the public vindication of the justification that Christ has already accomplished for us. Because right now, our justification doesn't match our sanctification. That we're perfectly righteous in Christ, but we're still broken and sinful right now, right? But on the day Christ comes back, we're going to be perfectly glorified. What God says about us right now, that we are perfect in Christ, that will finally be completely that will finally match our glorified state. It's true about us right now, but what he says about us will finally match our glorified state in that time. And when we're glorified, we'll be just as much like God as it is for any creature to be. That all Christians will be resurrected when Christ returns and will be given a glorified, perfected body. Now, there's lots of questions you have, and lots of questions I have about that, and we can't answer all of them, uh, but, you know, one question we can think about is what are our resurrected bodies going to be like? Well, the best answer to this, honestly, is just to go and read 1 Corinthians 15 and see what Paul says. But for sake of time and for, you know, being a little more, little more succinct, I will give you uh, a few points from 1 Corinthians 15 about our resurrection bodies. The first is this that they'll be imperishable, that, you know, they, they won't grow weak. They won't uh, wear out one day. You know, right now our bodies do that, you know. But yet, one day when we receive glorified bodies, they won't be that way at all. It's likely that our resurrected bodies will have a youthful but mature appearance forever. And on if that means we're going to look like we're 30 or something or 25. I <laughs> like I peaked before, you know, 30, but you know. I don't know what that means exactly and what age we'll look like, but we'll be maybe youthful but mature and maybe the most prime that God has designed uh, the human body. But more than that, we know that in our glorified bodies, uh, there will be no more disease, no more injury, no more handicaps. We're going to have perfect bodies. Our bodies will display God's full wisdom in how He created the human body. We will display the image of God and His glory in a way that God has always intended for our bodies um, to do. That's the first thing. They'll be imperishable. Third, second thing, they're going to be raised in power. Um, and that's really in contrast to the weakness of our human bodies. We can say that our bodies will be free from disease and aging and will be given full strength in the power that our bodies have intended. I don't think that means that we're going to be like superheroes and be flying around or something, but I think that means we'll have all the strength that God wants us to have to fulfill our role in the new creation, which we'll talk about more in a few weeks. But there's another question you know, what kind of continuity will there be between our present bodies? In our future resurrected bodies like will we will we look the same when we're glorified or will we look different you know will, will they be completely new bodies or will they be renewed or a combination you know what, what's going on let me, let me give you just one verse that Paul says or two verses in 1st Corinthians 15 verses 37 and 38 he says and what you sow is not the body that is to be but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain but God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. Now what Paul's saying here is this is that we see that God's going to transform our bodies into glorious bodies, much like a seed starts you know as something so small and simple, but yet it grows into something so much greater, sometimes even very beautiful. So God's going to take what's even left of our physical bodies at the time Christ returns, and He's going to use it to make something glorious. And when think about when Jesus was resurrected, You know, the disciples were still able to recognize him when he was resurrected. So it's very likely that our resurrected glorified bodies are going to have some kind of resemblance to our current physical bodies. But there were also some times when people had trouble recognizing Jesus. But that was likely because he was in his glorified and resurrected body. He was restored to complete health and youthfulness, unlike his time when he was crucified and under trial. So that will definitely look similar to how we do now but we may even look a little better in in some way, whatever that may mean uh, for you. Uh, But one more thing on glorification, and then uh, we'll begin to wrap up tonight, is this, is that not only is glorification uh, for us in the future where we are made perfect, that there will be no more presence of sin, both the temptation in our hearts, but also sin's impact on even our bodies as they decay and grow weak. Not only will our glorified bodies be perfected, but in glorification, the entire creation will be made new as well. And really we should say it'll be renewed. You know, because of Adam and Eve's sin, if you go back and look at Genesis 3, God cursed the ground where it now, you know, brings forth thorns and thistles and would only yield food useful for us by the sweat of our brow is what Genesis 3 says. But more than even that now, in fact, all of creation is now under the curse of sin. But if you go and read Romans 8 see that in the later part of that chapter, Paul says that when Christ returns, not only are we going to receive glorified bodies, but all of creation is going to be restored as well. Let me just read you a few verses from Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, lots we can say about that. We'll spend more time talking about this in a few weeks. But in this renewed earth, we know for a fact there's going to be no more thorns or thistles, no more floods, droughts, there's going to be no more tornadoes, no more earthquakes. No poisonous snakes or deadly animals. There's going to be no more cancer, no more disease, no more mourning, no more sin, no more death. But in this this new creation, it's going to be perfect and completely renewed, just like God intended for it to be. It'll be like Eden, only astronomically better. And even more than that, there's going to be this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem that's there as well. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But I want you to see tonight that salvation really is a three-step thing or a three-part thing not steps necessarily, but we are justified by the work of Christ for us. We're made completely righteous. We're also being sanctified right now. We're now, through God's Spirit at work in us and our own cooperation with the Spirit, we're growing more to be like Christ. But then one day when Christ returns, we'll be completely glorified, that we'll have no more sin reigning in our bodies, we'll receive new glorified resurrected bodies, and we'll live with God forever in the way He's always intended for us to be that's the big picture of salvation that's what it really means when we say salvation now we'll talk way more about new heaven new earth heaven hell end times things like that in two weeks but next week we're going to talk about the church and what it is and what role it should have in the world and what role we should have in it right now so i'm looking forward to that conversation Uh, but until then if you have any questions from The video this week, you can, as always, text the number here on the screen. I'd love to respond to your questions and be as helpful as I can be. But besides that, hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you soon.